Around the world, wild Atlantic salmon have left an indelible mark on human civilization. 22,000 years ago, early humans carved a life-size male salmon into the roof of a cave in southern France, the earliest known image of the species. As people reached the Atlantic coast of North America, salmon helped shape entire cultures, from the first people, to the first settlers, to the first anglers taking the king of fish on a tiny fly. In the United States, wild Atlantic salmon runs numbered in the hundreds of thousands every year along roughly 60 rivers from the Long Island Sound to the northern border. Today, their last refuges in Maine, where groups of dedicated anglers, scientists, and conservationists are trying to preserve a place for salmon. I'm Charlie Schmidt. And I'm Caroline Losnick. You're listening to episode two of the Saving Salmon podcast, The Human Connection. This is the Penobscot River on the left. That's a reservation island. There's over 200 islands in the reservation. John Banks is Natural Resources Director with the Penobscot Indian Nation. The community's reserve stretches 60 miles along Maine's Penobscot River, the heart of their traditional territory. We often say that we are the river. It runs in our veins. And uh, she allowed us to prosper for thousands and thousands of years. And the first people settled here. We were the first people to settle this region after the glaciers retreated. And we've always used the river to meet all of our needs. Today, the Penobscot River is home to the largest remaining population of Atlantic salmon in the United States. Yet, at around 1,000 returning adults in recent years, it's a fraction of what it was in the past. In the history books tell us that our tribal members harvested salmon right here where the Milford Dam is now by the tens of thousands every spring. Fish runs in the springtime were particularly important because many times it'd be a very tough winter and people would be starting to get hungry. And so it was always a welcome sight to see the fish runs in the springtime. It was a a great time of celebration where families would come together and harvest uh, fish from the river. And we had many different methods for harvesting the fish. We had spears and different types of nets that we used. That seasonal rhythm of life continued for at least 11,000 years until a Portuguese sailor, Estavio Gomez, turned his 50-ton ship into Penobscot Bay during the 1500s, searching for the Northwest Passage. He was the first to make contact with the Penobscot people, followed in turn by the British and then the French. Soon, salmon runs up and down the East Coast were falling into the hands of settlers. Early settlements in New England were built on salmon rivers, including the Connecticut and Merrimack. Records tell of salmon fishing expeditions as early as 1629, taking place on Maine's Kennebec River. Settlers mostly kept their catch to eat, but soon wild salmon became a marketable commodity, fished relentlessly and virtually without any rules. 
Salmon were collected as tax by British governors and bartered for other staples at a set price, according to historical records. Five pounds of salmon for one pound of pork, three pounds of salmon for one pound of flour, 48 pounds of salmon for one bushel of corn, six pounds of salmon for one pound of tea, 15 pounds The commercial of Atlantic salmon fishery in the United States held on until 1947. But beginning in the 1800s, another kind of fishing took off. Men and women with split cane rods casting artificial flies. The first Atlantic salmon taken in the United States on rod and reel was in Downey's, Maine in 1832. Angling culture flourished, and salmon went from being a commodity to a delicacy. It wasn't an everyday fish at all. It was really a special occasion fish. That's Nancy Harmon Jenkins, a food writer and historian from Maine. It's not something you go to the fishmonger and buy. It's something maybe your uncle or your father or your brother or your husband goes out and does a little fly fishing in the Penobscot and brings home a salmon, and then you have this wonderful meal. Like turkey for Thanksgiving, wild Atlantic salmon were part of the cultural calendar. One of the characteristic celebrations, I still try to do this, is salmon and peas on the 4th of July. This was the traditional dish for 4th of July. It wasn't barbecue, it wasn't grilled, it had nothing to do with burgers. It was salmon because salmon was running then in the rivers, in the Kennebec and the Penobscot and down east. And so you could go out and catch a salmon. And at the same time, if you were a smart gardener, your peas were just starting to come into season. And it is a fabulous combination of flavors, I have to tell you. People line the Penobscot every spring, rods in hand, hoping to land the first catch of the year, which was treated as a bona fide celebrity. The newspapers reported the first fish every year, who caught it, who bought it, how much did it sell for, which market was it displayed in on ice in the window so people could come and look at it. That's Katherine Schmidt. Her book, The President's Salmon, tells how the first salmon caught in Maine eventually reached the White House. An angler by the name of Carl Anderson started that tradition when William Howard Taft was in the Oval Office. In 1912, Anderson was lucky to catch the first salmon from the Penobscot. It was packed in ice and straw and shipped overnight to Washington. Here's Catherine Schmidt. We don't have records of Taft eating or serving the fish, but certainly presidents after him, we have records of them actually sending thank you notes or noting how and when the fish was served. The numbers of returning fish continued to decline, and eventually wild Atlantic salmon were added to the endangered species list, George H.W. Bush was the last commander-in-chief to receive the presidential salmon, something Claude Westfall, now in his 90s, will never forget. I was fortunate to take the last presidential salmon that was taken, and that was in 1992. Westfall is a prolific angler. After catching the first salmon from the Penobscot, he and his wife were invited to deliver it personally to the Bush's summer home in Kennebunkport, Maine. And um, when the president is there, it's blocked off. And so I got to that point, and they stopped me and said, uh, who are you? They said, where do you want to go? I said, well, I said, I've got an appointment with the president. And they said, you what? I said, well, I said, I've got an appointment with the president. They said, what's your name? And I told them it was Claude Westfall. So they had a sheet of paper there and so on, and they looked at that, and immediately they said, oh, yes, Mr. Westfall. That came right to attention. said, 
you go right ahead, just a short distance down the road, and they'll be waiting for you. And the first place we stopped was an opportunity for them to check everything out. They checked everything out in the car, opened everything up, went through it all, took the salmon, for example, and uh, I wasn't sure I was going to get it back. But thankfully, Claude did get the fish back from the Secret Service, and then it was on to meet the commander-in-chief. We went in, and we were waiting for him to come down. And when they came out on the walkway there, and everybody was introduced and so forth, I mentioned to uh, the president, I said that uh, on my mother's side, my great-grandfather was Henderson Bush. And all the Bushes are related. And when I told him about that, he came right alive there, it seemed like. And he says, well, that's interesting. That must make us kissing cousins. <laughs> so he referred to me as kissing cousin ever after that. And once he was back home, Claude got this letter in the mail. Dear Mr. Westfall, it was a pleasure to be with you at Walker's Point for the presentation of the first salmon ceremony. Your gift of the cap is a fine memento uh, of the occasion, and the handcrafted fishing flies are a great motivator to start casting. Thank you for these thoughtful gifts. Best wishes. Sincerely, George Bush. An avid Atlantic salmon angler himself, the president may well have used one of Claude Westfall's hand-tied flies while visiting wild rivers in New Brunswick, Quebec, and Labrador across the Canadian border. When Claude Westfall and President Bush met in Kennebunkport, Atlantic salmon populations had already sustained centuries of abuse. In the midst of the Revolutionary War, citizens in the province of New Hampshire wrote to the governor, His Excellency John Wentworth, complaining about the situation on the Merrimack River. The fish has been so much harassed, catched and destroyed, passing up and down said river, we have great reason to fear that the said fishery will be wholly destroyed unless some proper methods are taken to prevent and remove those impediments. The pattern of abuse did not cease, and no matter how much people valued rivers and fish, as America grew, the dams and factories always won. By the middle of the 20th century, river pollution had also become a major threat to the species. Here's author Catherine Schmidt talking about Maine's Penobscot River. In the 50s, the river was coated with scum. It was brown, it had foam on it, it smelled. Salmon anglers didn't even want to be on the shore of the river. They moved down east. It's kind of hard, I think, for people to remember or imagine a river being that polluted. One statistic that captures it is that there were about 150,000 people living in the Penobscot River Valley in the 1960s, but the level of pollution in the river was as if 5 million people lived in the Penobscot River Valley. Anglers moved away from the Penobscot to rivers in Maine that still supported decent runs of salmon, like the Denny's, the Narraguegas, and the Pleasant Rivers. The tradition of the president's salmon was suspended, but then, in the early 1970s, things began to change with the passage of the Clean Water Act. Towns built wastewater treatment plants, the mills updated to reduce the amount of waste going into the river, and within eight years, by 1980, the Environmental Protection Agency had declared the Penobscot River a water quality success story. All of those things combined 
led to a resurgence of Atlantic salmon in the Penobscot River. A few dozen in the early 1970s to a few hundred in the mid-1970s, people once again going down to the banks of the river and seeing fish. Fly fishermen dusted off the salmon club and started fishing again. And they came back so quickly that in 1981, salmon anglers decided to resume the presidential salmon tradition. Many of those anglers were members of fishing clubs that sprang up along Maine's rivers in the 1800s. The oldest one in America, the Penobscot Salmon Club, was established in 1887. Nearly a century later, in the late 1970s, the Vesey Salmon Club was established. Its own clubhouse was built on the site of a reclaimed landfill. Located down a short gravel lane, the clubhouse perches over a bend in the Penobscot River lined with prime fishing spots. Recreational angling for Atlantic salmon was banned in the United States in 1999, but the Vesey Club still has a small membership. Cribbage is now the main activity here, and pictures and memorabilia line the clubhouse walls. Anything to do with Atlantic salmon, I'm involved with it. Galen Hashi helped build the club from scratch by convincing enough enthusiastic anglers to chip in for a $250 lifetime membership. And of course, the club grew fast, leaps and bounds. We, we had something like 300 members and another 150 or something like this on the uh, waiting list. You almost had to know somebody to get into the club. Hashi says fly fishing with a boisterous group of friends and a legend like longtime member Claude Westfall was a big attraction. Come down, have a cup of coffee, get out and the camaraderie you have with nice fellas, you know, like Claude. He was generally here every day. You know, he's part, part of everything that was going on. But he's usually the first one on the water, too. <laughs> when one person was fishing down on the river, whether it be Claude catching a thousand fish a year or anybody catching salmon, there were always people in the club playing cribbage. That's longtime member Bob Wenchenick. And when a fish would be hooked, here's what would happen. Someone would ring the bell, and everyone inside would go out and line the deck and applaud the person, cheer them on while they were fishing. So if there was one person catching a salmon, there were 30-some people enjoying that salmon. And that's what salmon fishing was about, not just about the person in the water, about the club, about the camaraderie, about the history, about the people who could no longer go down there and fish for physical reasons, age or whatever, but they still fished every day in their minds. The camaraderie of the community is what I moved back to Maine for uh, after I moved away. And uh... Andy Fitzpatrick is the youngest member of the club by a couple of decades, and he remembers the sting of the closure. And to hear that that was going to go away, can't have that. Can't have that. I bought a junker of a house in Vesey, and I had one of my fishing buddies help me move furniture in, and as we're standing there, this salmon splashed, come up out of the water. And I hugged him before I hugged my wife. And I'm like, we're going to fish salmon and Invisi. And they closed the river for fishing. And I said, it'll come back. It'll be back. Whether Atlantic salmon in the United States can bounce back will partly depend on ocean conditions. Even as river conditions improve, and after salmon staged a hatchery-supported comeback in the 1970s and 1980s, the numbers returning from the sea have dropped off sharply. 
It used to be that 7 or 8% of juvenile salmon would migrate successfully back to their home rivers. Today, salmon returns, especially in the Gulf of Maine, are down by more than half of what they were just a few decades ago. Kathy Mills is a scientist at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute in Portland. She says climate change is a likely suspect in the case of low marine survival. It has gotten warmer in the marine ecosystem from the Gulf of Maine all the way up into the Labrador Sea and over to Greenland. So during this period, we seem to have experienced a major change in the energy available to salmon in the ecosystem and how they were trying to obtain the energy to keep them growing and keep them alive. Mills says as the number of salmon in the sea have declined, it's become harder and harder to study them. Finding one U.S. fish in a marine survey is like searching for a needle in a haystack. The entire species is facing a severe test. Given what we know about future conditions, some of the stressors are only going to become more and more exacerbated. So I think this is going to really be a test of the adaptive capacity of this species. Back at the VZ Salmon Club, members continue to organize community events and rent their space to help pay the bills. Bob Wenchenek is determined to push state and federal agencies to reopen a live-release fishery for salmon and in the meantime pull people into fish for resurgent runs of striped bass and American shad. So this is still a place that has a foundation and the roots that will grow again. When that bell rings again, when we can catch and release salmon again, and we will, come heck or high water, the vibrancy will be here again. We're trying to maintain it now, and we will, for future generations. On the next episode, we'll take a look at recovery efforts from mid-coast Maine to the Canadian border, what's working, and what it will take to bring Atlantic salmon back for the people of New England. You've been listening to the Saving Salmon Podcast, Episode 2, The Human Connection. I'm Charlie Schmidt. And I'm Caroline Losnick. The Saving Salmon Podcast is a production of the Atlantic Salmon Federation with generous support from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Theme music is composed by Ben Trout. To learn more and get involved, visit www.asf.ca.